Well, good evening. It's a delight to be with you this evening. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 16. Romans chapter 16. And if you were here with us last week, you'll remember that um, the way I introduced this series that we're about to go through is uh, as an uh, overview and survey of Paul's letters with a particular focus on what Paul says to these individual churches and church leaders in these letters and how he challenges them and, and, and teaches them and instructs them concerning what it means to be a church, a local church, in connection with other local churches as part of the one universal church of God. We're going to continue that theme tonight as we proceed through Paul's letters one by one in the order that we find them in our, in our copy of God's Word. And uh, tonight we're going to look at Romans, and in fact the very last chapter, Romans 16. But let me begin just simply by asking you a question, a couple of questions in fact. What do you think of the church and the churches? And let me put a finer point on that. Um, what, how would you define uh, what it means to be a local church? How would you understand your, uh, uh, not only what it means to be a local church, but your place within that church, how it's relevant for you? And um, how you relate to the church as, uh, as an organization or as a group. And I'd like to suggest to you that there are at least four ways that are common in our society, in, modern, um, in the modern United States, the way that we think about local churches. Let me briefly list them and explain those ideas. The first is that we think of the church as a kind of a service provider. The church provides a service and we perceive ourselves as consumers who are free to seek the service that we most want in the moment like diners at a restaurant or lessees of an automobile. We're free then to, uh, to, to go and, and uh, avail ourselves of another service provider if we're dissatisfied with our current service provider. And, but we don't really see much of a role for ourselves in that kind of situation. We see the church as mainly providing us something that we'd like to uh, consume or, or, or receive. The second way is to think of the church as an uh, institution. This is a, similar to the idea of a service provider, but kind of a, a slightly different flavor. We think of the church as an institution with its own bureaucracy and order, but still there's a sense in which that is distinct from what we are, uh, what, what, what our, our role. We don't have much of a role in that. And so we think of the church in terms of uh, the clergy and, and the, the structures and whether, whatever the denomination might be, if it's something like the Episcopalian church or the Catholic church, it's a, very hierarchical, very structured, ornate buildings that represent that particular institution. And we might go to that particular place and uh, receive what they have to offer, but we still think of it as somehow a bit distant from us. A third way that we tend to think about the church in our, um, in our current situation, in our current cultural context, is that we think about the church as a club, just like the Rotary Club or the Lions Club or any particular service organization or group. It's just a club and we here we see our, ourselves as having a role in that organization but then we have a great deal of freedom to order that organization however we like and to direct its, um, its uh, energies and, and, and uh, to, to um, uh, carry out whatever missions we deem fit and to do whatever we think is appropriate when we gather. And so we exercise a great deal of control that wouldn't be, you wouldn't see in the church as an institution or seeing the church as a service provider, but rather uh, but still it's somewhat uh, distant from 
the word of God as a controlling norm and the authority in the life of the church. And then a fourth, um, a fourth way that I'll consider that's uh, sim- similar to the idea of a church as a club is a church as a clique. And here I mean to simply focus on the idea that we tend to think of local churches as a, a group that has insiders and outsiders, and we either think of ourselves as part of that group or think of ourselves as outside of that group, but we see that that group is somehow very exclusive and territorial and admits people based on arbitrary definitions of what brings someone into that group and, or what excludes uh, the, someone from that group. And I, I do su- would suggest to you that every single one of these ways that we tend to think about the church has at least some merit to it. The church does have a divine, defined structure. The church does provide service, and there are individuals who are uh, assigned to fi- provide particular services in the church. The church is an, a group of people that gather together in some kind of camaraderie and some kind of um, uh, something similar to a club in some ways, and there is a standard for who is included and who is excluded. And yet, what we tend to do in our society is to make any one of those things the kind of the sum and substance of what we think the church to be. Well, this evening, as we look at Romans 16, I think we're going to find a somewhat different picture in Paul's mind. We're going to see that Paul tends to, thinks of the church as something quite different. In fact, what we'll see, I'll suggest to you, is that Paul's idea of the church and the church is, is that of a single body of individual believers united as fellow workers, fellow servants, and brothers and sisters in Christ. And that this single individual body, these individual local bodies, are further united then into larger network, uh, larger network as the one universal church of God. But here he focuses in this text upon individuals who make up the church and the things, the kind of things that they do and the roles that they play as he commends them, as he greets them, and as he seeks to, uh, uh, seeks to call the Roman uh, church to greater unity uh, with one another. So from this text, which is rather just a personal greeting of sorts, we're going to see uh, behind, if you will, or, or in the subtext, something of Paul's thoughts and ideas about the church. So would you follow along with me in Romans 16, beginning in verse 1 as I read? I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prissa and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, whom not only I give thanks, but also the, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert in, to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. My beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. 
Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, as we come to your word tonight and we look at Romans chapter 16, we are challenged because we see in it a uh, list of many names and greetings, and yet at first uh, blush it's hard for us to comprehend what, uh, what profound insight we might gain from this text. And yet we know that this is your word, O Lord. This is profitable for building us up. This is profitable and for training us in righteousness. And so we pray, O Lord, that you would give us wisdom and insight into your word and help us to understand it, help us to apply appropriate lessons from this text in our lives, that we might be united with one another and with other faithful churches in the work that you've given us, just as you called these Christians, these brothers and sisters in Christ and forebearers in the faith of ours, to greater unity through your servant Paul and through this letter with commendations and greetings. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would instruct our hearts and instruct our minds from your holy word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to outline a kind of uh, methodology or uh, kind of describe one of the ways I approach texts like this, and I'm informed by my own interest in uh, genealogical research. I haven't uh, engaged in this research uh, much uh, recently in my life, but there was a time where I spent a great deal of uh, of ours trying to uh, outline my own family tree. And as you can imagine with a last name like Brown, uh, that can be a difficult thing when you're trying to trace that particular line. Uh, when, you, when you find uh, you have an ancestor named Fred Brown around the early 19th century that's like searching for one Fred in a sea of Freds or a needle in a stack of needles. And uh, so one of the things that I found in that search as I tried to find out find this particular Fred Brown, a great-great-grandfather of mine, and figure out who his father was, was I was helped by the city papers in Waterbury, Connecticut. The city papers is like the yellow pages, and if you don't know what the yellow pages are, well, that's uh, how we figured out where people lived and what their phone number was before we had computers to do that. But um, I would scour those city papers one year after another and look at the names and find Charles Brown and, and trace his address, and I would be able to discern what points in time he moved. And eventually I was able to find, uh, I said Charles Brown, I was finding Fred Brown, and then I was eventually able to find that he was the son of a Charles. And over time I was able to put things together and, and place things and figure out some of the things that happened in their lives. I was never able to discern the entirety of their life and the whole story, 
but it gave me some insight into where they lived and what they did and what kind of jobs they held, working in factories and brass factories in Waterbury, Connecticut, and eventually to trace that back to where they hailed from there at the, during the uh, years of the Industrial Revolution. Well, here if we look at Romans 16, we see something quite similar to that, a document, a historical document of sorts, the whole list of names of people, of real historical people, and you say, well, isn't that obvious? Perhaps, but I think when we see this list of names, it, the temptation is to skip past it. We've read it once and uh, in our annual Bible reading. We'll never read it again. You know, we'll skip right past because it's rather boring at first, first blush. And yet there's a lot here, and if we can look closely and think very carefully about what might be said and maybe where we might know some of these people from elsewhere in Scripture, or perhaps we don't know anything about them from elsewhere in Scripture, but think about those things, we might glean some info, insights. These are real people with real lives, real Christians, real brothers and sisters in Christ, our brothers and sisters and forebears in this faith, and we can learn from them. We will one day meet them, uh, Lord willing. And, and uh, so I think that, um, in any case, that has helped me to think about how might we uh, slow down and think about each person in this list and learn something from them. But also, as a whole, it is really striking, and it teaches us something about the church. It teaches us something about Paul. Because it's, re it's rather striking that Paul will name 28 individuals in this text. 27 by name and, and another um, uh, that he references uh, obliquely. Uh, but, uh, and I, my count might be off by one or two, but about 28 people that he names individually. And then groups of people as well. And it shows Paul's concern for individual Christians. And he can actually say something about them. He's not just... Uh, piling up platitudes, but he can actually speak uh, int with intimate details about some of these people. Not all of these people are people that he's actually met. He's never been to Rome and visited the church in Rome by the time he writes this letter. It's his desire to do it, and he talks about that in that letter. Talks in, the, in chapter 15, he talks about how he's been wanting to come to them, but he's been prevented thus far. And part of the reason is because the church is already planted and established, and Paul's mission was to go where the gospel had not been preached and had not been proclaimed. But now he had finished his work in um, the eastern part of the Roman Empire and what we, he knew as Asia and what we know as modern-day Turkey. And he was preparing and hoping to go on to Spain, to the western parts of the Roman Empire, and Rome would then be on his way and he would have opportunity. But first he had to go back to Jerusalem. He had to deliver a gift to the church in Jerusalem, and then he could start to make his way to Rome and beyond. So he'd never been to Rome he had never met some of these Christians. Others he knew from previous travels. They, they weren't all in Rome um, for their whole experience. And yet he knew intimate details about their lives, and he could commend them for various things and greet them with those kinds of intimate details. And it does show that Paul had a concern for individual Christians. He did not view his ministry as though it were a kind of one-man show. He didn't view the church as though it were a kind of one-man show. But he saw the church as an organization that depended upon the service of many members who each made an, an important contribution. I want to say something about the fact that this is the first time in the book of Romans that you actually see the word church, which I don't want to make too much of that. We can oversell that. It's not the first time Paul talks about the church. You can look back in Romans 12 and you can see that Paul speaks about the local church there in verse 3 and following. But there he uses the language of a body with its members to describe the church. 
He says, therefore, by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. And really, through the rest of chapters 12 through 15, Paul will give instruction that he aims at build, uh, to, for the building up of the church. But there we see that Paul does speak about the church in terms of a body that is united with many members, each with his and her own gift, serving the needs of the one body of Christ. There's a unity that he sees. But Romans 16 then gives a real personal quality that, to that. As Paul comes again and thinks about the church in its relationship to other churches connected through individuals who have real relationships of service, of friendship, of familial fellowship, of love, of, um, of, uh, of support, and, um, and so on and so forth. And so we see, we'll see that here then in Romans 16. Now let me remind you of the main point as we begin to look then at the text and break it down into a few uh, portions. The main idea then is that Paul w seeks to unite the Roman churches. I say churches because it seems to be that there's a few different local house churches in that large city of Rome. But they're all the church in Rome, and yet they, they meet and they, they um, gather individually in, in different houses, in different, uh, in different homes. So he writes to these churches seeking to unite them. That's really a, a major purpose of the whole of this letter. He wants to unite them because uh, there's, not that there's a major fracture and he doesn't make mention of any kind of great debate, but we can look at history and see that uh, it's likely that there was some kind of conflict that arose between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians in Rome. What would have given rise to that kind of controversy and difficulty? Well, in 49 AD, roughly around that time, the Emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from Rome. And uh, a later historian says it was because of some debates about a person named Crestus, which is probably, uh, he misspelled Christ, Christus in, in Greek. And so probably what, what was happening was there were Jews who were coming to faith in Christ and there were other Jews who were, who were against it. And so the kind of thing that happened in Thessalonica, where there was a riot and conflict, happened in Rome as well. And the emperor said, I'm not going to deal with this. All the Jews have to leave without making a distinction between Christians and, and unbelievers. And that lasted until Claudius died in 54 AD. And with the accession of Nero, that command would have uh, become obsolete. So many of the Jewish Christians had opportunity to go back to the place where they lived, go back to Rome. And many of them did. Uh, we know he names Prissa and Aquila. We know that they were driven out by that, that uh, exile from Acts chapter 18. Paul meets them there uh, in Acts chapter 18 because they had been exiled from Rome by Claudius. And now he greets them as they're back in, um, in Rome again, these two Jewish, this, this Jewish couple. And so you can imagine a church, imagine a church of, say, 100 people, and all of a sudden, 50 of them are forced to depart, forced to go away. 
And for the next five or six years, that church, um, that church grows and that mature, church matures, but without any influence of people with a Jewish heritage, only with people from people with a Gentile heritage. And so you could imagine how suddenly after about five years, the reintroduction of Jewish Christians into that church might create conflicts. And you see that kind of instruction in Romans where Paul speaks about how to deal with the way that the fact that some people respect certain days and festivals that you find in the Old Testament and others don't. Some people eat certain foods and some people refrain from eating certain foods. Well, this all makes sense then when you think about the potential for conflict as Jewish Christians reintegrated into these churches. And so Paul writes this letter for at least for a number of purposes, but one of those purposes is to unite the Christians in Rome around the one gospel of Jesus Christ, to unite them in that one gospel for the glory of God. And in this concluding uh, greeting and commendation, that's really the purpose of what he's doing, is he's seeking to continue to engender unity between the people of this church in Rome, those many house churches, and to, to uh, engender unity between them and other churches that are supporting them. So Romans 16, we can then break down into um, really four sections from Romans 16, 1 through 23. First, Paul will promote what I'll call ecumenical unity through a personal commendation. When I say ecumenical unity, I mean unity between different local churches. I'm not using it in the modern sense where we're talking about cross-denominational type of work, but rather we're going to see unity between the church in Corinth and that region of Greece and unity of the churches in Rome and that region. Then he's going to promote congregational unity through personal greetings, and we'll see that in verse 3 through 16. And then he's going to guard against divisions that would fracture that unity through impersonal warnings in verse 17 through 20. And then we'll see that once again he promotes ecumenical unity through further greetings in verses 21 through 23. So verse 1 and 2, Paul promotes ecumenical unity through a personal commendation. I, command, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Centria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This woman Phoebe is from Centria, which was a port city near Corinth. And so she is probably the person who is carrying the letter to the Romans in her possession on her way to Rome. But she has some personal dealings that she must perform there as well. She must be a person of some means because Paul says she has been a patron of him. She has supported him in his work. And now she must go to Rome for something. Paul doesn't tell us what. It's not important. The Roman Christians who received her, they would find out what she needed to do what her errand was as she spoke with them, and Paul commended her so that they might support her in whatever it was that she needed to accomplish. Now there's some debate over whether this is a woman who's merely recognized because she's, uh, a, she's, she's devoted to acts of service, or whether that word servant is um, more technical, meaning a deacon of the church in Centria. I don't think that the evidence is uh, enough for us to make a decision one way or another. Um, but there are some who believe that, that she was a, truly a deacon and that justifies appointing women as deacons in the churches, and there are others who think just a servant. 
And as I said, I don't think the evidence is enough to go one way or the other. But she was recognized for her service. And she is, uh, Paul says, to welcome her in the Lord. Now think about the importance of a commendation. Uh, I want you to understand the importance of a commendation in this context. Um, in the, in the uh, Royal Navy in the uh, 18th and, and uh, early 19th centuries, when someone wanted to achieve a promotion, it was important for him to get a letter of recommendation, to get a commendation from a more senior officer. So if someone wanted, maybe a young officer was hoping that someday he might get command of his own frigate or his own sloop. He would hope that an admiral or a captain of some clout, some renown, would write for him a commendation. And when that admiral or that captain wrote a commendation of this individual, he was essentially putting his own reputation on the line. If that man then got that commendation and went out and took his first command of a ship and immediately crashed, crashed it on the rocks, uh, that would reflect poorly upon the man who wrote that commendation. And so someone would be careful with whom he would commend. And this particular man, I mean, in this case, similarly, Paul commends Phoebe. And I don't think he would just throw around his commendation wildly or loosely. She really is a remarkable person in the early church there in Centria for her acts of service and for her patronage and for her support of many, not just Paul, but certainly of Paul as well as many others who are engaged in the work of uh, the gospel, engaged in the mission that Christ has given us. So she is someone that Paul commends to the church. And so there's this, what, what that would do is that would create a connection and it would create uh, that kind of ecumenical unity that I spoke about. As the Roman Christians would see that Paul commends her, they would say, here, not, not only is there a link to this woman, but there's also a link back to her church in Centria and to the broader churches in the region of Corinth. We'll come back to that idea in a few moments, but I think that's an important uh, uh, point to recognize, that in Paul's understanding of the church, he doesn't see the church as, uh, churches as isolated units that are completely separated and walled off from other churches in their region, other churches even that might be quite far away. Centria was in what, uh, what would be modern-day Greece. And Rome is, of course, in what would be modern-day Italy. Somewhat close, but that would be like going across state lines in the United States. Um, and yet there's a connection, and there's a mutual correspondence and support of one another. We ought to have that kind of attitude in our own life as a church as well. I also want to note, and we'll see it again, the value of women in the church. You see, sometimes, because we understand that the Bible teaches that certain offices are reserved for men, only men can be pastors in the church, only men can engage in preaching and teaching. And as I alluded, there is some debate about whether or not women can serve in the role of, of a deacon in the church. But certainly, at the very least, putting aside that debate for the moment, at the very least, Paul did not permit women to hold authority through the teaching and preaching of the word in the church. And we can see that in 1 Timothy chapter 2. We can see that in other texts as well. Nevertheless, Paul valued the unique contributions of women in the church. You see, sometimes recognizing that there are certain offices that are reserved for men, we can so reduce and diminish the contributions that women bring that we almost push them to the side as if they have no role whatsoever. And I simply submit to you that we see exemplified in this text that's not the way that Paul thought at all. He depended upon and relied upon the patronage of this woman. And we're going to see that he also recognizes the contributions of other, other women as, as we proceed in the text. So Paul promotes 
ecumenical unity through this personal commendation. We also see that Paul promotes congregational unity through personal greetings. And I won't read again every single greeting we he, we, we've seen here, but I will draw your attention to a few aspects of the greetings that we see in verse 3 through 16. The first thing I want to note is this word, greet. Paul is not saying, I greet Prissa and Aquila. Paul is telling the people in Rome to greet Prissa and Aquila. It's in the second person plural. It's a command. He's saying, you greet this couple, Prissa and Aquila. He's saying, you greet Eponidas, you greet Mary, you greet Andronicus, and so on and so forth. And you start to see how he's engendering unity between brothers and sisters in Christ in Rome, in naming so many of them and calling them to have that kind of personal, affectionate relationship. Now, we think of a greeting as something like, hi, hello, we see someone on the street, any stranger, we say hello, we say hi, it's no big deal. A greeting was much more important at this time and in this culture. If you've been with us for some months in the evenings, you, you remember that from 2 John, when we looked at that letter in 2 John. We saw that John told people not to greet, not even to greet false teachers. Don't give them any hospitality. Don't even greet them when they come into a city. What we saw there is that the reason why John said don't greet them was not because he didn't want them to say hello, hi, you know, just show some natural courtesy but because it would have been understood in that culture that when someone came into town and he received a greeting from another person, it was as if that person was giving his personal commendation to that individual, as if he was putting his own attaching his own credibility within his community to this newcomer, to this stranger coming into town. And if that person was a false teacher, then John did not want Christians to extend their credibility to those individuals. But here, quite the opposite then, uh, uh, not contradicting what John says, but in a, a different scenario, Paul is, is saying to greet one another, these people who are faithful Christians, who have demonstrated their faithfulness. He wants them all to greet to one another, to acknowledge their worth, their proven worth, acknowledge their service in the church. And in that way, he's promoting unity between them. I already mentioned Prissa and Aquila and the role that they've played. We, you can, you can read about them in, the, in Acts chapter 18. I mentioned how they were expelled from uh, Rome. And they actually um, came to Ephesus where they would ultimately host a church there in their own home. But they also were instrumental in the training of one of the great preachers of the first century, Apollos. Apollos who was a great preacher and yet as he was preaching the word of God, Prisca and Aquila heard him and they took him aside and we're told in Acts 18 that they taught him the word of God more accurately. This couple, this man and this woman, both playing a role in instructing Apollos more clearly, more accurately in the word of God. And so we also can then discern that they were certainly well studied. Uh, they, they were knowledgeable in the word and able to teach, able to guide and disciple uh, other Christians, both new Christians and mature believers because of their knowledge of God's word. And Paul recognizes them as fellow workers who risked their necks for his life. He doesn't say how they did that, but they put their life on the line in order to save Paul's life. Maybe when there was a riot in Ephesus, as we read in the book of Acts. We don't really know, and Paul doesn't go into all the details, but in this way, he gives a kind of commendation to them as he tells the other Christians to greet them. He also notes how respected they are in the churches of the Gentiles. 
Paul says, I, not only I give thanks for them, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church then, he says, in their house. And so we see the first instance of a house church meeting in the home of Prissa and Aquila there in Rome. He also speaks of people as beloved. We see that right away with Eponidas. And Eponidas, he recognizes as the first convert to Christ in Asia. This really could, the, the word is first fruits, and it could mean he was among the first converts. It doesn't mean he, he, he necessarily that he has to be the number one guy on the list. But in that first batch of converts, if you will, he was among them. And Paul will also recognize um, others as well in this text who are known to the apostles, namely uh, Andronicus and Junia, who had been his fellow prisoners at one point when Paul was imprisoned. They are his kinsmen, which is a way of saying they're fellow Israelites by their heritage, by their ethnicity. And they are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Junia and Andronicus, seems like this is a couple, a man and a woman, came to Christ even before Paul, and he recognizes that. Now, saying they were well-known to the apostles could mean they were well-known among the apostles, and if that's the case, it's not the technical meaning of apostle, but rather that broader meaning of a kind of a missionary. They're well-regarded as missionaries, as sent ones, but they're certainly not among the twelve, uh, or they're just well-known to the twelve. Um, there's some debate about that, but I think most would, would say that it means that they are missionaries and they were well-regarded as faithful sent ones, faithful missionaries. As we continue on, we see, again, people who are fellow workers, like Urbanus and Stachys, who, another one who he calls beloved, Apelles, who is approved in Christ. How is he approved? Paul doesn't tell us. But Paul recognizes that he's been approved, that somehow he has proved his mettle, proved his worth. He talks about the family of Aristobulus, or the household, I think you could translate that, the household of Aristobulus. And probably Aristobulus, and then after him, Herodian, those two individuals are not members of the church, but rather uh, people who are well-known, who would have slaves and who would have servants and have a large household. And Paul is essentially greeting people who are known for that attachment, for that service in that household. It's possible that Aristobulus is a great, uh, or a gr a great grandson, I think, or grandson of Herod the Great, um, someone we would know from history. And that seems to per perhaps be suggested also by the next reference to Herodian, a name that's similar in nature. We can't know all those things for sure. And that's okay. That's one of the fun things about just like reading, uh, studying genealogy, looking at a list of names, is you don't know all the details of their life. And you can imagine you don't want to press anything too far. But again, as I make that point about these being real people, people of all sorts of backgrounds, some Jews, some Gentiles, some who have been Christians for a long time, even longer than Paul, some who have been Christians for only a short time, some who have uh, suffered greatly, been in prison, been put their lives on the line in their work as uh, ministers of the gospel, as missionaries, as fellow workers with Paul, and as people who supported the work of others. Even Rufus, we see in verse 13, very possibly is the son of the man who was pressed into service to carry the cross of Christ. We don't know that for sure again, but um, Mark names... Rufus and Alexander as um, the sons of Simon of Cyrene who was pressed into service to carry the cross of Christ. Perhaps this is that Rufus, chosen of the Lord, Paul says, and also his mother, who he says has been a mother to me as well. 
He recognizes the syncretist, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, and Hermes. And then again, there's another church that meets in their house, the brothers who are with them. Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them, another house church. Greet one another with a holy kiss, for all the churches of Christ greet you. Now you see that, that what, what Paul is doing then, as he is calling upon them to greet one another, all of these independent churches, these local churches in Rome, he's, he's, he's drawing them together as one church, in a sense. One uh, regional church, you could say, or one church in a very large metropolitan area. Um, I'm not trying to, to paint a picture of a multi-site kind of church or multi-campus church, but I'm, I am showing you that Paul did not want all of these churches to be so independent that they had no dealings with one another. Here's the church for those with Jewish heritage, and here's the church for those with Gentile heritage, and here's the church for those who are slaves. Many of these names reflect that people had the status of slaves or people who had been freed from slavery. No, no, no. This is one united body of Christ. And their dealings with one another and their affection for one another and the way that they greet one another ought to reflect that reality in their lives. It's certainly the way that the other churches that Paul has been laboring with, laboring among and serving, um, it's the way that they regard the church in Rome. All the churches of Christ greet you. So these churches locally in Rome ought to have that same, uh, that same um, sense as well. And I suggest to you then that that's the way that we ought to think of ourselves also. That we ought to be a church that seeks unity with other faithful churches. With other churches that hold to the same gospel that we hold to. And that unity is difficult. Uh, it, it's, it's more difficult 20 centuries on when things are a bit more complex with denominations and, and a, um, a whole lot more complexity in terms of what people believe. And we have to weed through all of those questions about how, uh, how much difference is acceptable difference when we talk about how we partner with other churches. Those are all legitimate questions and complex um, complex questions that we have to deal with, you, deal with. But our natural inclination should not be to shut off all connection whatsoever with churches outside of our church. Our natural inclination should be to seek how might we partner, what would be a legitimate way to partner with others. In that regard, then, we find uh, some instruction about how to, uh, how to cut off partnership, if you will, or when we ought to create uh, barriers between us and others. Here in verse 17, Paul gives what I described as impersonal warnings. We've seen all of these personal commendations and greetings. Now we have impersonal warnings that warn against those who would divide the church. Verse 17, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. What probably was going on in Rome at the time was that you had the same kind of thing that you were seeing in Galatia, where there were people who were trying to convince Christians that they needed to, in some way, go back to the Old Testament law. That being a Christian was great, having faith in Christ was great, but you needed to add something like circumcision or kosher eating in order to truly be saved, in order to be truly welcomed into the people of God. That was the Galatian heresy that Paul uh, rejected so strongly in his letter to the Galatian church. And it's very likely that that's a very similar problem that the churches in Rome were dealing with. It was perhaps the 
the greatest challenge to the gospel in the first gen among the first generations of Christians. Other challenges, however, in the course of history would arise, and the instruction does not change. We're to watch out for those who cause divisions. And how do they cause divisions? They create obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Now, when Paul says the doctrine that you have been taught, he's not saying go off of what you learned as a child. He's saying go off of the doctrine that you've been taught by the apostles. Go off the doctrine that Paul has outlined throughout Romans chapters 1 through 15. He has just spent 15 chapters of this letter describing the true gospel, explaining in great detail his own preaching of the gospel and how that bears upon the relationship between Jews and Gentiles and how that relates to our understanding of God's promises in the Old Testament and so on and so forth. And now having laid all of those things out and applied them in specific ways in the lives of the Roman Christians. He says, avoid those who would sow division by creating obstacles. Obstacles meaning things that would make faith much more difficult in an, uh, in an unnecessary way, in an unbiblical way, in an improper way. Something like circumcision would be an example of such an obstacle. It would make it very difficult for a Gentile convert to truly become a Christian, if that's what was really necessary. So watch out for those people who sow the divisions by creating obstacles that are contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. We ought to be careful not to expand upon that doctrine far beyond what the apostles taught. In, particularly in Paul's outlining of the gospel, as we see it in Romans chapter 9. But what, what I mean to suggest is that there are there are things that are debatable. There are things that are disputable. I brought up one at the very outset of our study in Romans 16. The question of whether or not Phoebe is a deacon of the church in Centria or merely recognized because she's served very well. People are going to differ on that question. And it's actually, the, 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 the data is very difficult. It's not very clear on either side. That's not something where churches ought to have really strong divisions and, and go to, it's, it's totally fine for a church to make a decision and say, this is what we're going to do. But then to condemn and say someone has gone down the road to liberalism and they're a heretic because they differ on something so small and so uh, uh, something that we don't have a lot of support for either way, it's not a legitimate reason to separate. On the flip side, if, uh, I would say it is a legitimate reason to separate if people are saying that um, the pastorate should not be uh, restricted to men, if they're, if they're denying that, because Scripture's very, very clear on that point. Or uh, especially when we talk about the, uh, the preaching of the gospel, if someone is, as in their context, they're adding to the gospel, you, you, you have to be saved by faith and some kind of work some kind of mark of distinction, circumcision or keeping of food laws or festivals or the like. Or they're saying that, uh, as we saw in John's letters, denying that Jesus really came in the flesh or that Jesus really is the Christ or that Jesus really is the Son of God. Those kinds of denials are extraordinary denials they are not, that, that make someone not a Christian. And there needs to be a line of separation. There's not really a, a good opportunity then to partner with people who are promoting that in fact, they ought to be rejected as false teachers and marked out and uh, watched out for. That's the idea of watch out. Mark them out and avoid those people. Why? Those people, they don't serve the Lord. 
They serve their own appetites. They're, they're selfish, self-centered, conceited people. It's the same as what we saw in 1 John. That the people who were promoting the false teaching that John combated there were people who were so focused on themselves, they were focused on their own appetites and their own exaltation. And they use smooth talk and they use flattery to deceive the hearts of the naive. No, watch out for those people. Avoid them. There can't really be any kind of unity with people who would deny the gospel, who would undermine the word of God, and who would undermine that which is, uh, that which is the, uh, the, the faithful teaching that has been handed down through God's word from the apostles who received it from Christ himself. Now, Paul is confident that the Romans will do this. Your obedience is known to all, he says. So he rejoices over them. But he wants them to be wise. He wants them to have a discerning mind, to be able to discern what is good and to, and to also be innocent with regard to what is evil. And so he's giving them these added instructions and these added ad- admonitions so that they might be on the alert and look out for those things and make the right distinction, recognizing those who are truly brothers, many of whom he's already listed, to make that rather easy for them. People who have labored and worked and risked their lives for the gospel and those who are not, who are deceivers, because they're self-serving, seeking to divide the church of God. And he leaves them then with this assurance. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Now I find that a striking statement. The God of peace will do something that's not very peaceful. But in fact, Satan is the source of all conflict, all that is murderous. And so it's entirely fitting There is a day coming when the God of peace will destroy the devil just as he promised all the way back in Genesis 3 when he said that an offspring of the woman would crush the head of that serpent. And that day will soon come when false teachers, people who are animated by this chief opponent of our Lord and of his people, they will be no more because the devil will be no more. But God's people will be victorious. That's our assurance in that battle as we think about the challenges that come with discerning uh, true teaching from false teaching, true brothers and sisters in Christ from those who are not. We know that ultimately the victory will be for God's people because the God of peace will crush Satan under our feet. Paul then leaves them with his benediction, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now there's a final point then as we as we come to the close of the passage, again we see the promotion of ecumenical unity, but this not time it's not from Paul. Paul was most likely dictating this letter to an amanuensis, a man named Tertius. And here, those who are with Paul and working with him, they seek to add their own greeting onto the end of the letter. And then Tertius himself also writes a greeting of his own. So Paul is speaking in verse 21, but then in 22 we'll see Tertius takes up and writes in his own voice, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church. This is the man in Corinth. This is where Paul's writing from Corinth. And Gaius seems to be the man who hosts the church in Corinth. And is also host to Tertius and Paul and his companions. He greets you. And so does Erastus, the city treasurer, seemingly a man of some stature in Corinth, and our brother Cortus. Cortus, they greet you. 
So you see again that church in Corinth showing this regard for the church in Rome and adding their voice to Paul's voice to affirm their desire to see the Roman Christians find unity around this gospel that is the gospel that they believe as well. The gospel that Paul has outlined in Romans that he commends to them here as he commends them to one another. And so we see the promotion of ecumenical unity between churches across a broad region, the promotion of ecumenical unity between churches in a local municipality, the promotion of congregational unity through a personal greeting, and the promotion of uh, and and a guard and warning against those who would divide the church from that unity. How can we summarize this, and what can we learn, and how can we apply it then to ourselves as a local church? We come back to the question, what is a church and how do we regard the local church? We have not really even begun to give a, uh, a full and total answer just by looking at Romans 16, but we've taken a good initial step. Any answer that doesn't speak about unity between individual Christians, united in one body, all serving one another, all loving one another, all promoting the gospel together in fellowship and unity is not a good definition of the church. You can see that here in Romans 16, the way that Paul addresses this group of churches in Rome. We as individual believers have a true individual identity, and we're going to labor and we're going to serve and we're going to work according to our gifts, according to our calling, according to what God has called us to do. And that's appropriate and right. And we ought to commend one another as we see others fulfilling their calling. Just as Paul commends various Christians here for doing what God has called them to do according to the gifts that he's given them. We ought to commend people when they act with courage, when they act with resolve for the sake of the gospel. We ought to commend them when they serve from their means. We ought to honor that. We ought to seek to do that with what we have. There's an individual reality to the Christian life we ought not to lose sight of. But we also, in that individual reality, we need to not lose sight of the corporate reality of our life together as a church. That, that there is a unity. There is a connectedness. That one, it's not one person doing great works for God and yet having no dependence and no need of others. Even Paul himself depended upon the support and the... Uh, the, the, the um, The support of others, he depended upon fellow workers who worked alongside him. He depended upon people who would help him write these letters, who would take the dictation. He depended upon people in a whole number of ways, and it's it's the same way in our life together. The church is not about an individual being exalted above everyone else, except one individual, Christ. It's not about any one of us being exalted above everyone else, but it's all of us together working according to our gifts, mutually depending upon one another to further the gospel, to fulfill the Great Commission, to love one another. And in that, we will be victorious. In our corporate identity, we will be victors in our struggle as Paul assured the church in Rome that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So too, in our common struggle as individual Christians corporately united, we too will find that we Share in that ultimate victory of the people of God through the victory that our Lord brings. So when we think about our life together, then I I want to leave you with these admonitions. Value other individual believers for what they contribute 
to the church, to its unity and to its growth as a body of Christ. And know that you are valued as an individual believer. Fulfill your calling as an individual believer by serving the needs of the body according to the gifts that you have. Avoid those who would divide us and don't be one who's divisive yourself. But always seek to promote unity. That doesn't mean that you avoid any conflict. Conflict may be necessary to promote unity. If it's a right rebuke or a right exhortation, fitly spoken, that's important. But the kind of self-serving division, we must avoid those who would do that, and we must avoid becoming those kinds of people ourselves. We ought to be people who promote unity in our congregation and as appropriate with other faithful congregations uh, that we are privileged to serve with and partner with. And for that final point then, let us be people who promote cooperation with other faithful Christians elsewhere. Many of you, maybe not, I shouldn't say many, but a few of you have come here from other congregations that you gather with in the morning. And that is a joy to me. I'm so grateful that you come here in the evening and I have no desire whatsoever to pull you away in the morning. I want you to go back to your regular place of worship every Sunday morning and do these things in that congregation. Even take our greeting and take our, send our love to those whom you worship with and minister with and seek the unity there and let them know that that's our desire for you and for your congregation as well. It's a joy to partner into, with you all in this simple way and to, and to, to serve you. And there's no desire on our part to be in competition whatsoever. And so we're thankful you're here, but we, we also hope that as you go back to your congregations in the morning, you'll pursue these things with those who you regularly gather with too. Well, let me close finally with a little anecdote. I find it interesting to think about the historical um, things that have happened, the, the, the way that history plays out has a kind of uh, interesting irony sometimes. You see here what's happening as Paul writes this letter to the Roman church, is that in some sense, it's the Corinthian church who is encouraging the church in Rome. He's writing from Corinth with Corinthian believers who are helping him and lending their credibility to the things that Paul's saying. Well, not many years later, about some 40 years later, it would be flipped. A man named Clement was the pastor in Rome, and he would write a letter on behalf of the Roman church to the Corinthian church because they were fractured and they were no longer united, but they had, uh, they had kicked out their pastors and they had, um, they had fired them all and they had been replaced by other men who were self-seeking and sowing division. And it was in that moment that uh, Clement could write, among many other things, something to this effect, you know, you've done this before, go and get that letter that Paul wrote to you and see that you've, uh, uh, that you've done this before and that there he called you not to be faction, uh, to separate into factions, under your favorite leaders, but to be united. So do that again. And there we know from history that the Corinthian church listened, for they read that letter from Clement for many years to come in their gatherings. He, he became a man, and that church of Rome became a church that not only was united for many years to come, but also uh, promoted unity to, to, those ch to that church that had uh, called them to unity so many years before. And I just think that's a wonderful testimony to the effect of God's word in their lives and the effect that I hope that it will have in our lives as well as we seek unity with one another. Well, let's pray. Father in heaven, 
We thank you, Lord, for your word, and even in these parts of your word that seem so uh, devoid of anything profound, we find that there's, there are riches that, um, that uh, would instruct us, and that would challenge us, and that would exhort us. So we may, may we hear those things, Lord. May we indeed be a church that is marked by unity as brothers and sisters in Christ. Where there is disunity and there's division, Lord, we pray that you would heal these wounds where repentance is necessary. We pray that you would cause true and godly repentance. Where forgiveness is necessary, we pray that you would cause us to be forgiving and to love one another and to seek unity always. Father, we know that this ultimately is a gift that you give us, for you are the God of peace, and you enable us to live at peace with one another. So we pray that you would inscribe your word upon our hearts and in our minds. Now and for many, many years to come, may we be a church that is marked by unity with one another. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.